This is a No Double Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and today I'm joined by Jared Parsons, the C-Sharp compiler lead at Microsoft. Thank you very much for taking time out of your morning, Jared. Uh, thanks for having me. To start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so as you mentioned, um, I'm the C-Sharp compiler lead at Microsoft. Um, I've been at Microsoft for about 17 years now, uh, probably 15 of those. I've been working in the kind of .NET languages space in one form or the other. Um, I spent a lot of time on compilers. I spent some time in the IDE and debugging space and was in a bit of research for a little while as well. What does it mean to be the compiler lead at Microsoft? It means that um, I'm responsible for kind of the, the C-sharp compiler, making sure that it ships, it has a specific amount of quality attached to it, that um, overall we generally tend to have themes for the release that we're working towards, and those tend to involve having a lot of language features that coordinate with other teams within .NET and around Microsoft. And I'm generally responsible for kind of making sure that that all comes together at the right time for our releases. How big a team is it? So I have um, six people currently reporting to me. Um, the team size fluctuates, uh, but usually it's between six to eight people who report to me, usually have an intern over the summer. When a company, or sorry, when people think of a company like Microsoft, you almost always think, oh, unlimited resources. You must have, <laughs> you know, I've heard that like, there's buildings dedicated to exchange. Six people mm -hmm. doesn't seem like a huge amount for a whole language. Um, it's, it's, I think pretty much six to eight people is pretty much the sweet spot in terms of like a compiler implementation because, uh, unlimited resources would be kind of bad in some ways. I mean, it is one code base that we all share. And if you had a hundred people like trying to turn on the compiler at the same time, there, there'd be a bit of chaos. Like six to eight people is a good amount of people where we can manage a pretty heavy load of features and get a lot done in a particular release but also at the same time, we don't have too many cooks in the kitchen changing the same parts of the code at the same time. And it allows us to really kind of partition work out and schedule it so that we keep a nice steady rhythm with how we're doing work. And then are you dedicated solely to the compiler or do you sometimes get involved in other code? Uh, I get involved in a lot. So I run the compiler team. I run the, I also run the Visual Basic compiler. Um, I personally, I do a lot of work for the the overall infrastructure for .NET. So how we build .NET, how we run our kind of CI infrastructure at scale across the entire .NET organization on GitHub. And I also um, help out a lot with kind of how the components insert into Visual Studio and what the cadence is for that and how those products kind of fit together. I want to ask kind of a, a fairly basic question. What is the compiler? <laughs> So um, the compiler is um, a tool for generating error messages for users um, as you type. But uh, so the compiler is generally what takes the C-sharp code that you've written and translates it into a kind of binary, a DLL or an EXE. Um, that's generally kind of how most people view the compiler. The way that we view the compiler is we own an API for semantic analysis on code. Like we have, we have a, basically a big set of a library, which contains like a C-sharp parser, a C-sharp binder, um, the ability to get semantic information, the ability to take some code and get put like compile it into like a stream of bytes. Um, and the compiler that we own is just a very, very tiny piece of code that wraps those APIs. The same APIs that we own power things like IntelliSense and Visual Studio. 
like when when you're typing in Visual Studio and getting all that nice rich set of information under the hood is all the APIs the compiler owns that are helping the IDE understand what it's looking at. It's doing the parsing. It's helping them get symbol information. And that is what we own and kind of ship to a number of different people. When you're talking about compiling down to the binaries, there are a number of stages though, aren't there, before it gets down to what, let's say, the um, X64 runs or the ARM64 runs. Yes. So generally, the, the, the kind of high-level phases of the compiler is we have just parsing, which is pretty standard, turning into a kind of an abstract syntax tree, the initial binding phase where we attach meaning to a lot of the words. Like when you type um, int into your IDE, it's like, that's just a word. Um, it's until it gets to the symbol phase that we attach meaning like, oh, that is this type in this DLL, which has these characteristics. Um, an initial binding um more or less goes through the entire, every statement that you write attaches symbol information and basically says, is this valid code? Is this meet the standards of C-sharp? And then we have <clears throat> probably two or three phases that are somewhat invisible to the user where we kind of lower that code closer and closer to IL. Um, and eventually we get to the full IL phase, which is IL is essentially the assembly language of .NET. And from there, the compiler's job kind of ends. We Our output is primarily just IL on disk, where it actually gets translated into like x86 or um, x64 code is when the .NET runtime actually executes the assembly. And the either the just-in-time compilation kicks in, where as the code is running, it is outputting the um, true machine assembly, or more recently, kind of our, our ahead-of-time compilation strategy, where they try to push that out a little earlier um, so that you're not doing it as the program starts. Where do the operating systems come in in relation to the compilers? Like I sometimes use Linux, I sometimes use Windows, and I used to use Mac in the past. The, the compiler is somewhat agnostic to the operating system. So what we really care about is we are just running on top of the, the compilers run on top of the .NET runtime. And as long as the .NET runtime can execute on an operating system, then the compiler is pretty much going to work there just fine. Um, there was when we made the, you know, C Sharp is historically a Windows based um, programming language because of .NET, but as .NET moved to Linux, so did the compiler. There was a lot of fun bootstrapping that happened when we first made the transitions over to kind of Linux and Mac, um, some fun games with how we got things working then, but that was, you know, a long time ago. These days, it it just works. Uh, like sometimes when, um, I'm investigating a test failure that is like Linux only, I just throw up WSL on my Windows machine, and I'm off to the races in a couple seconds. So it's nice and smooth these days. Yeah, I've noticed that it has become a lot easier, but I remember the first time I compiled on Mac. You know, I'd, I'd done it on Linux, I'd done it on Windows, but it was sort of, oh, I wonder, you know, it's probably going to work on Mac. And, and, you know, there it was, my API was up and running. Yeah, I mean, we did learn a lot of quirks about different operating systems. Um, for instance, when you actually do a build, the compiler uses takes advantage of name pipes um, as a way to run our compiler server to really speed up compilations. And we learned that um, the way that name pipes work on different operating systems are very observably different. And it caused us a, a lot of fun headaches in the early days. So then when you were saying, you know, you said it run, as long as your code is compiling and it's run on a runtime, it'll work. So is there is a runtime team, its own dedicated team within Microsoft completely separate from the compiler team? Yes. So the runtime team, they are the ones that the run, there are actually 
several runtime teams because we, for instance, we own the CLR runtime. We own kind of the mono runtime. Um, then the WebAssembly version of the runtime. It is, there are a group of people who maintain the runtime and they, there is somewhat of a split, like the mono runtime and the core CLR runtime are generally different teams, but they have, they exist in the same repo. They have a lot of shared infrastructure that they rely on. Um, and they do have a constant like set kind of background task of trying to merge as much a shared code as they can. I've had your colleague Mads Torgerson on a few times in the most recent time in um, in the fall of last year when C-Sharp 10 came out. One of the questions I was putting to him was, you know, when he and the design team come up with a language feature, who implements it? And he said, I should talk to you about that one. <laughs> yeah, so generally my team is responsible for the implementation of features. The C-Sharp language design team, they kind of write out this, they design the feature, how should it look, how should it work, like what type of conversions are you know available, what are natural types and all those things. But my team is essentially the one who puts pen to paper um, and we actually go and make it work in the tooling. Um, and, and I say generally my team implements because we're not the only one who implements compiler features. The community actually these days will provide um, a significant number of compiler features as well as sometimes within Microsoft, you have, we have the C-sharp compiler team and we have the C-sharp IDE team. And very frequently uh, we work in the same repo, we work in the same code bases. And sometimes there are members of the IDE team, like Cyrus is a particular one, who will come into the compiler and say like, I have some spare cycles, I wanna con contribute part of the work there. Um, and while the, in those cases, the other people outside the compiler team do the kind of the bulk of the code writing, even then, the compiler team is still very much involved in the reviewing of the code, making sure it's fit, giving like design feedback and kind of architectural feedback on like, okay, there are a couple different ways you can approach this feature. We think it's better if you kind of approach it from this direction versus that direction. And so the compiler team is involved in all the implementations, but we do get significant contributions um, from outside of our team. And this might not be a particularly fair or easy question to answer, but how much work is there to implement a feature? And, you know, I'm, I'm not picking one in particular, so. Um, it's an enormous amount of work. Like even some of these simplest features, like some features customers come to us and they're like, what, this is easy. Like, just do it. And it's like, actually, there, there's a lot of work involved in that. And let me just kind of run kind of top to bottom of like what all it takes to do any feature. So the compiler team, we... Um, like our features are used by every C-sharp developer out there. So millions of people. We also, all of our, we, like I said, we own kind of an API that we expose to a lot of people on how you can inspect code. And so when we do a feature, like even at the base level, it has to go through a very rigorous implementation process. And we actually structure it so that we have one person who's writing the feature and two people who are reviewing the feature. And we have a primary and a secondary reviewer. And the primary reviewer, um, we kind of jokingly say is adversarial in that they're the one who is responsible for coming up with a test plan. And so, like make we have kind of a list of things to always think about when we're testing a feature. And the primary reviewer kind of comes through and says, like, you need to think about these cases. Don't forget about this. Don't forget about this. You need to write tests that make sure that like these scenarios are covered. And that is something we actually kind of allocate time to like someone, you know, a compiler person might be writing one feature and a primary viewer on another and a secondary viewer on a third feature, but it is a 
it is something that the compiler team considers a significant part of what they contribute to the language is reviewing someone else's feature. And then outside of that, like even that is a an enormous amount of work. But one of my common refrains I tell people is a language which just has a compiler is a toy. It's not very, it's an academic thing. Like what makes C-sharp great is the ecosystem and the experience around it. It's like the Visual Studio experience, the VS Code experience, the like integration we have into kind of the .NET API surface space. And so whenever we do a language feature, we have someone from the IDE team who is also helping us out. They're like, we we will never put a feature back into main until we can use it in Visual Studio. It might not be, it might not have all the bells and whistles in Visual Studio, but we won't put it in there unless we can type, we can edit, we can run the code, and we can step through that code without things crashing. But by the time we actually ship it to customers at RTM, like the IDE team, they have to come through and do a lot of work. And they have to make sure that it is beautiful. It is the refactorings are hitting, the stepping is showing up in the debugger window. That is a significant cost for them too. Um, Oftentimes, depending on what type of feature it is, we might have to go and work with a runtime team and saying, this is the code we're emitting. We want to make sure that this is going to produce like great code at runtime that's going to perform well. And if we find out it's not, we might have to work with them on, hey, you should give us an API here that we can hook into. Or um, if a feature is something that is affects API shape, if something that can show up in a method signature, or it's something like a new way you can talk about fields, we have to go and sit and talk with a BCL team and say like, hey, this is how we're thinking about doing it. Um, this is how it would kind of look in metadata. Are you all comfortable with what that means for you since you kind of own the APIs of .NET. And so there can be a tremendous amount of work in that. And also all of the teams I've just mentioned, like we're also committing to owning this for you know 20 plus years. And so there's a lot of kind of talk about, okay, yeah, we can make that work, but are we comfortable owning that for 20 years? And so there is a tremendous amount of work that goes into even what some people would think are like very small features. And like we, one thing I tell people is like, we very rarely do a language feature in a PR. We almost always have to open a branch. We spend multiple PRs, multiple iterations, really kind of breaking the feature down and getting it in. And then only when we believe it has reached a specific level of quality, will we let it go back into the main branch for other people to see? Because one of the worst things we can do is give a bunch of people a feature. It doesn't perform well. It has a lot of bugs. They depend on them. We start changing it. And so we we have a very high bar for that. Can you give an example of, let's say, the thing that someone said to you? Ah, oh, that's really small. But no, in reality, it would be this knock-on to all these other teams and teams and teams. I can give you a good example of something that people would think is like very easy. Um, in C-sharp 10, we added the ability to have structs that have parameterless constructors. Um, up until this point, we've always forced to say that if you have a, stru- a constructor on a struct, it has to have at least one parameter. And some people told us like, well, this is easy. You're just removing an error message in the compiler. You just let us type them out. Like, yes, it has like the funny little restriction that um, in a couple of cases, like if uh, with arrays, they won't run or here have you. But this is just remove that error message. That's really all you have to do. And it's like, actually, no, it, it, it's exceedingly complicated. Um, like 
the way struct constructors function in terms of how they set up memory and initialize them um, has pretty enormous consequences for the parameterless case. Like how do we deal uh, how it impacts, like how we set up the fields. It also impacts strangely that um, the way the runtime calls constructors for structs is very different. Um, one thing that we found out when looking at the feature um, is in generic cases. So in C sharp, you can say like where T new. So like this T has a parameterless constructor and you can call it. Well, we found out that the runtime um, actually invokes struct constructors differently if you said where T new versus where T struct comma new versus whether or not you had a public versus non-public constructor. The runtime team did very different things with them because it was a code path that had never been tested before. And it took us a lot of work in language design to kind of work out like, what did we want the rules to be? And eventually we ended up saying things like we forced structs um, constructors to be public because that hit the sweet spot of what all the runtimes did for a while. Another thing we found when we were implementing that, um, so C Sharp has the ability to do chain constructor calls. So at the end of a constructor, you can say colon this or colon base and call into like a base constructor or a chain constructor. Well, we found out in C Sharp that we have allowed people to chain to parameterless, parameterless constructors forever. You can do colon this, even though we never let you actually write a parameterless constructor. And once you have parameterless constructor, we have to decide like, what does that mean? Like, does that does that now change to the base constructor? Does that do the old thing? And that ended up in some very gnarly circumstances for us and how um, the language design worked to kind of resolve some of these problems. And actually, it's something that once we gave the customers, we, we actually found a couple of bugs, like pretty bad ones, because it turned out that this parameterless case was very infectious um, in how other initializers worked and we actually had to fix some pretty serious bugs after we released that feature. And normally people are like, Oh, it's just removing an error message. It's like, no, actually it's like weirdly complicated when you dig into the details. So from that kind of perspective, then how much of a say do your team have on the language feature? So, you know, there, there are these C-sharp design sessions, you know, can you come along and say, no, that would be too complicated when we cannot do it. So my team has, so the way language design works is language design is a group of individuals around the company um, who have other jobs, but participate in C-sharp language design. Um, half of the C-sharp compiler team is a member of the C-sharp language design team. So we have a lot of influence in that way because we actually help design a lot of it. But in terms of like, but we do have kind of a dual role. Are we coming to language design to talk as a designer or are we coming and talking as like someone who implements the feature? Um, we have a, you know, a pretty big say in how features are done. I mean, there's the people who own language design are very reasonable people. And we can often come to them and say like, this is a fantastic idea, but man, does the implementation not work out the way that you think it's going to work out? Like they, you know, when we put pen to paper, like we found out like, oh, you all didn't, you know, realize how the runtime worked in this specific case, or you guys didn't think about how these two features are interacting. Um, or kind of one of the scariest ones that's happened a few times um, is, we language design designs a feature and they say, oh, it's going to work this way. And then the compiler team comes back and says, oh, we know that the, this feature used to be spec. The, this happened with switch statements, for example. When we started doing kind of all the pattern matching features in C Sharp, 
we had a, a way that we were going to expand how switch case worked. And the language design team had done this really thorough job of specking out like, okay, when you, you can now start putting types into the case statements and you can start putting like more constants and more things and it'll be great. And the compiler team had to come back and say, oh, you all didn't realize that switch statements actually um, do all of these hidden conversions in them. They actually like take the the thing you put in the switch statement and they'll silently convert it like up and down to longs and all these other types that had never been spec before. Like no, that was not a part of how the language was specified. But the person who chose to implement that feature 15 years ago had made those decisions. And so the compiler team had to come back and ruin someone's day and say, hey, you, the feature actually works differently than you think it does. And that was, those were, those type of things happen from time to time. And I guess in a case like that, you can't go and change it because you'd be breaking code from 15 years ago. Yeah. In general, the rule, we keep compatibility. The, um, that particular case, um, I think if that decision came up again today, we would probably change. We would probably err on changing compatibility because we have a better sense of what the ramifications for that would be. Um, back in the time for that particular decision, we had a much harder line on compatibility. But now, because we've been able to increment, uh, make the uh, compat changes incremental, like we we have a slightly like some of these kind of terror scenarios in the corners where more willing to be flexible if we can tie it to how the language evolves. Going to change kind of topics a tiny bit, not not too much. Where would you say the, the language stops and the framework begins? Because I, I never use C-sharp in isolation. I use it as part of .NET. It's an interesting question because it's a very gray line. So like part of the C-sharp language design is people who own the framework. And so we C-sharp can kind of be divided into a couple of different like areas, like even if you say that like there are some C-sharp features which affect method signatures or they affect like how fields look or how types are expressed, those are very much tied to the framework because that is completely how they express things. But even if you look at how features are like expressions, things that are inside method bodies, like how like the new switch expressions work versus how the new pattern matching work, those are all used by the framework team as a part of their implementations. And so the framework team is very heavily involved in kind of all of our discussions. But, and kind of like, where does it end at the end of the day is the compiler, there's a very tight knit relationship in how we design features and how we use them because the framework team wants to make sure that it's going to work with how they want to express them, what new APIs they want to offer to customers, how they want to um, kind of expose things like span, like what APIs they want to put them in. Like those are their decisions, but it does require that we, write the features to a way that's going to work for them. But in terms of the raw compiler, um, the compiler has very little dependency on the framework. Like we we don't depend, when we emit code, we have very small dependencies on what APIs exist. Um, and every new dependency we take is somewhat of a big deal because it's, it's one more thing that can go wrong. It's one more thing that would prevent you from using the feature in other contexts. With .NET 6 and, you know, things like the top-level statement, global usings, all these things to trim down the, the boilerplate, how dependent are those features on your team and the compiler? Uh, very dependent because we're the ones who have to implement them and make them work. So those are, those are the, the, the way that 
some of those, I think a good one to talk about is kind of like global usings and top level statements and like how they work, because I think it's a good example of how the .NET team like does design. So a lot of the genesis of those features did come from like the ASP.NET team. And they came from very specific reasons. Like if you take like essentially the hello world for ASP.NET and, you know, just a very simple web page, a razor page, which prints a very, you know, small little website that you put up there. And then you compare that um, to like Node or Golang and put it up there and say like, what does that look like? Like how much code is involved? Like um, the difference in like between like .NET 5 and Go and Node is vast. Like there is the amount of ceremony that you had to put up to get that little, that basic web page up there was, it was enormous compared to those other languages. Um, and that might seem like a silly thing, but it's actually really important when you talk about getting new people into your language. Like the more ceremony you have, every, like one thing I like to say is like every line, like using system or using system.collections for someone who's new to programming, that's something you have to explain. That's a roadblock for them to move on to the meat of your code, which is like putting, like printing out HTML. And it was viewed by that team as kind of an adoption blocker. Like a new person coming into programming is going to look at these three different ways of writing a web page and say, well, those two are a lot easier. I'm going to learn that language instead of .NET. And so they had in their head a way of saying, hey, if we could have these kind of features, like the ability to make usings a little bit more global and the ability to just get rid of some of the ceremony of getting to the main method, then we could really close the gap and end up creating kind of a first user experience that was much more on par with other languages today. And from there, that kind of went to language design. They had a very kind of like a rough outline of what they wanted to achieve. And then language design kind of took over from there and said, okay, like, let's, let's get this to a more refined state. Let's get the details. Like, how does it flow from the file into the compiler? What does it, what does a global using mean in terms of how it relates to usings in the file? How do we deal? There's a lot of concern over top level statements. If we have them in multiple files, like which one wins? Like, do you, uh, where do you start? If you have two files with top level statements, like, where do you start executing the code? And we eventually simplified and just said, okay, one file with top-level statements for now. Um, but after that, then it comes to my team to actually go and implement it and make it work. And those features are interesting because they ended up having a lot of input from build files. So you can control global usings by setting a property in your project file. And that meant that my team had to go and talk to like the MS build team and the SDK team on, okay, what are you going to call it? How are you going to push it into our code? Things like that. When you say the MS build team, what's the difference between that and the compiler team? So the compiler is, it's a little EXE, takes a couple hundred parameters these days when you like, when you do like .NET build on like Hello World, I think the the number of parameters that end up getting passed to the C-sharp compiler is probably around 150. Um, there's probably... We have about like a hundred different references to get passed for one reason or another. You have to pass the file. You have to pass a couple of like usings. There's some pretty default switches you pass to the compiler every time. The compiler, like the MS build team is the one who more or less, the MS build and .NET SDK team are the ones who effectively own .NET build. Like they drive how the overall build works. And that's, they read the project files. They read um, 
they construct what should go into a compilation, and they're the ones who actually end up invoking the compiler. Um, very few people actually just run the compiler themselves. Like the the big user experience is .NET build. Like that is what people see. That is what people want to make better. Um, they very rarely just invoke the compiler themselves. So then, for things like published, trimmed, and ready to run, is that on the .NET MS build side, or is that on the on the compiler side? So that tends to be for ready to run and publish trim. That actually tends to be very much owned by the .NET runtime team because that is affecting very much how your application is deployed. Like trimming is the act of removing all the unnecessary code. It's saying, well, the you know the 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 .NET framework gives you a huge amount of things. Like you have a networking stack, you have all kinds of um, encryption, you have all kinds of compression libraries and Hello World probably doesn't need all of that. Like, let's trim that down and get rid of it. But that is something that, like, the runtime team owns because they're the best ones set up to understand how that should work. And ready to run is also something that they own because that affects, they essentially are moving, instead of converting your IL to assembly at runtime, they're converting it at publish time. Um, now, once again, though, it's very similar to the compiler in that. Under the hood, they have these little tools they own that are really complex and take a lot of parameters that are very dependent on how your code builds. But like the actual trimming experience that you get from like MS Build, where you just put like, I believe it's like trimmable in your project file, um, they kind of own the user-facing experience, which we try to keep very simple um, and easy to use. Whereas if you tried to run the trimmer yourself, you'd probably um, pulling your hair out trying to figure out all the exact parameters you got to pass to it. That's the end of part one of my podcast with Jared Parsons. I'll publish part two in a few weeks. If you like this episode, you might also like the other episodes on C-Sharp with the likes of Matt Storgerson, Bill Wagner, Maria Nagaga, and others. There's a link in the show notes.
The opening music was returned by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Upbeat Funk Pop by Scott Holmes. <laughs> 